I'm Asia, Andrew Ferris, who very kindly joined us from Uruguay, our CEO at Ignosis Advisory, and Toby Lawson in Sydney, Director at Stratton Advice. Just a few uh, futures uh, and market open. Uh, we've got Korea is uh, actually up a, a tad today in terms of the futures. Um, the Nikkei is down a little bit and Hong Kong looks as if it's uh, uh, up a little bit, about 1% on the futures as well. So maybe it's a bit of a dull Friday too. Anyway, we're heading off to the weekend. I'm going to say farewell to the Year of the Tiger and welcome to the Year of the Rabbit. May I wish you and your families a very happy Chinese New Year. Gong fa choi. I'm Richard Harris, and this has been Money Talk. And now the uh, half-hour news with Barry O'Rourke. The Bar Association says it would be undesirable for a complete ban on overseas counsel for all national security cases. The comments came after Beijing's first interpretation of the national security law, Victor Laws, Victor Dawes, who was re-elected as the chair of the professional group last night, said he believed it would be more acceptable to the public if there were more flexibility to allow foreign barristers to join some national security cases. So far as the other NSO cases, that doesn't involve any secrecy or confidential information. I mean, there are quite a few. And in those matters, I think we can actually adopt a wait-and-see approach. We believe that if you preserve the flexibility, in so far as impression is concerned, in so far as um, trying to explain the matter to the public, in so far as public perception is concerned, we believe that it will be conducive to the administration of justice and the rule of law. The United States has announced details of its latest package of military aid to Ukraine, which it says is worth about $2.5 billion. The Pentagon said the assistance included scores of armoured vehicles and support for Ukraine's air defence. Earlier, several European countries pledged to step up military aid. The Supreme Allied Commander in Europe, General Christopher Cavoli, said tanks alone would not help Ukraine win the war. With the question regarding Western tanks... I think it's clearly the case that Western technology is outperforming Russian technology. However, I would point out that it's not just tank on tank. It's the whole system. It's the supplies. It's the logistics system. It's the maintenance system. It's the target finding capability. And all of that comes together. So the complex of an army is much more important than any one of its individual parts. Moscow has again warned the West against supplying Ukraine with weapons that could be used to strike Russia itself. It follows reports that Washington will announce a further increase in military aid at a meeting in Germany later today. The warning came from the Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov. Naturally, the very discussion of the acceptability of supplying Ukraine with arms that would allow strikes to be delivered on Russian soil is potentially extremely dangerous. This would mean bringing the conflict to a new level, which of course will not bode well from the standpoint of global or pan-European security. An ally of President Putin, Dmitry Medvedev, has again warned of the danger of nuclear war should Russia be defeated. The head of the Russian Orthodox Church, Patriarch Kirill, has said any attempt to destroy Russia would mean the end of the world. The United States has hit its dollar-borrowing limit, setting the stage for a standoff between President Biden and the Republican-controlled House of Representatives. The Republicans hope to make the White House accept spending cuts. It requires an act of Congress to raise or suspend the debt limit. The BBC's Samira Hussain reports. The U.S. government is no longer able to borrow money to pay any of its debts. If Congress doesn't address the debt limit swiftly, America would default for the first time in history. 
Most believe the financial consequences of the U.S. failing to pay its bills would be catastrophic. And yet many consider it a real possibility, given just how divided Congress is. For now, the Treasury Department will use extraordinary measures to avoid a default. The American singer-songwriter David Crosby has died at the age of 81. He was a rhythm guitarist in the rock band The Birds in the 1960s. He then also enjoyed commercial success as part of the folk rock group Crosby, Stills and Nash. The Hollywood actor Alec Baldwin is to be charged with involuntary manslaughter over the fatal shooting of a cinematographer on a film set in 2021. He faces up to 18 months in jail if convicted. The BBC's Sophie Long reports. Helena Hutchins, who was 42, was said to be an exceptionally talented cinematographer. She was on the set at the Bonanza Creek Ranch in New Mexico when the shootings and deaths depicted on the 19th century western they were filming became all too real. Alec Baldwin was holding the gun that discharged the bullet that killed her. He now faces two charges of involuntary manslaughter. Armourer Hannah Gutierrez-Reed was in charge of the guns and ammunition on set. She faces the same charges. Alec Baldwin's lawyer said the decision distorts Helena Hutchins' tragic death and represents a terrible miscarriage of justice and that he had no reason to believe the gun was loaded with live rounds. Finally, observations from citizen scientists worldwide have shown that the number of stars visible in the night sky has declined dramatically over the past decade. The cause is light pollution from artificial sources, which has increased by about 10% each year since 2011. The rate differs, but the night sky is brightening in almost every country. And we'll have more news on the hour from RTHK. Good morning. This is Back Chat for Friday, January the 20th, as we head into the end of the Year of the Tiger. Welcome to the show. I'm Andrew Work. And I'm Danny Giddings. On Friday's Back Chat, we'll be looking at the proposal to start live streaming court cases this year. In a speech at the opening ceremony of the legal year, Chief Justice Andrew Jung said the judiciary is actively exploring the idea, hoping to further enhance the transparency and public confidence in the judicial process. The Chief Justice said not all trials, particularly those involving a jury and vulnerable witnesses, were suitable for live broadcasting, but appeal proceedings would be a good start. So a working group's been formed to examine guiding principles and how to implement it. Other common law jurisdictions, such as the United States, Britain and Australia, have already been broadcasting court proceedings online for some time. And after 9.15, as the year of the rabbit is just around the corner, we're going to be looking at a Lunar New Year-related gallery at the Palace Museum. All right, we want to know what you think, so hit us on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. You can email us, uh, backchat at rthk.hk, or give us a call on 233-88266. And lining up today's show, we have a, uh, a group of legal luminaries to enlighten us, uh, starting with Grenville Cross, who is a senior counsel, professor of law, and the former director of public prosecutions in Hong Kong. Good morning, Mr. Cross. Good morning. Morning. Uh, we've got Dennis Brock, who's a litigator and a partner at O'Melveny. Good morning, Dennis. Morning, Andrew. How are you? I'm doing fine. Thanks for asking. Um, we've also got Evan uh, Rosevere, who's a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Hong Kong's Faculty of Law. Evan, hello. Good morning. Okay. Uh, let's kick off. Uh, let's start off with Grenville Cross. Um, first of all, is this a good idea? Should we be doing this? And, you know, you were a former director of public prosecutors. As a prosecutor, do you want the world watching while you do your job? Well, I think it's a, it's a, it's a very good idea. Anything that can be done to uh, demystify the criminal justice process is, in my view, a, a, a step in the right direction. Uh, as things stand, of course, members of the public can go into court, into particular courts and watch proceedings, provided there's enough room. 
uh, but most people don't get the opportunity to do that. Uh, and their knowledge of what goes on in criminal trials and criminal appeals uh, is basically based on perhaps television dramas uh, and reports in the media, which may not be accurate in any event, are normally very, very short. Uh, certainly when uh, the Supreme Court in the United Kingdom was established in, the, in, twin, in 2009, uh, a decision was taken at the outset that the, the proceedings should be live-streamed, uh, and that has been extremely successful. Uh, and because of its success, it was extended to the Court of Appeal uh, in uh, 2013. Uh, and then uh, the final step was taken to about two years ago, when uh, the uh, when uh, sentencing proceedings of the Central Criminal Court, the Old Bailey in London, uh, were also uh, 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 televised. So I think this is, a, this is an important step in the right direction. We talk a lot about these, these days about open justice. Uh, and I would have thought that the televising of uh, certain court proceedings uh, is very much uh, open justice in action. You said certain court proceedings. I mean, uh, they're, they're talk talking about, aren't they, about um, appeal proceedings, uh, probably the court of final appeal first. I mean, I think similar in Britain, wouldn't they start with the Supreme Court? Um, I mean, how far do you think it should go, Grenville Cross? Well, I, 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 would, uh, I would hope that uh, in the, in the, uh, in the court, court of final appeal and the court of appeal, uh, it would follow the uh, UK paradigm uh, and the, uh, the submissions of counsel, uh, the interactions between counsel and court, uh, and the, the judgments themselves uh, could be uh, televised. Uh, in the lower courts, uh, in my view, there should be restrictions because uh, quite clearly uh, there are some people who, who would be uncomfortable uh, if the proceedings were uh, broadcast. For example, uh, victims uh, have, have a right to anonymity, uh, particularly in cases of sexual uh, uh, abuse. Uh, members of the jury may not want their, uh, their features to be broadcast for everyone to see. Uh, so there have to be some sort of uh, restrictions. Uh, but uh, I would hope that we would follow the, the English example uh, and uh, allow sentencing remarks to be, to be broadcast uh, and perhaps also the, the submissions of counsel. But I wouldn't see, see it going, going very much further than that. Dennis Brock, uh, you know, I, I know you do the uh, the kinder, cuddlier side of, uh, of arbitration, but you're also a litigator. I've never seen you in action in the courtroom, but I guess uh, as a litigator, you kind of have to lay in pretty hard sometimes. Do you think it's appropriate for that to be broadcast? Well, I think it's a, it's consistent with the trend we've seen over the last 20 years to uh, improving transparency and visibility in court proceedings. When I arrived in Hong Kong in the 80s, uh, interlocutory matters were in chambers and in private, uh, the public weren't permitted to enter. And happily, um, I think in the, in the ju civil justice reforms, uh, we moved that from being in chambers and mainly open to the public, uh, save for uh, particular types of applications, stealth applications, if you like, which require uh, privacy and confidentiality, and of course matters involving children. But in, matters, in terms of civil litigation, <clears throat> I can't see any difficulty with improving transparency for the, for the very good reasons that Mr. Cross identified in relation to criminal proceedings. Uh, they apply with equal force in civil proceedings where, for the most part, we don't have juries and we only have bench trials. The criminal procedure, from an audience's point of view, the criminal procedures and the criminal trials are the ones that are going to be the most interesting, aren't they? I mean, that's what, um, aha, when you get uh, packed uh, pu public galleries, um, it, it more often tends to be for criminal trials, doesn't it? Correct. I don't think in my 30-odd years in Hong Kong, or 35 years, I've ever had a packed civil trial, um, because typically what we're doing isn't that interesting to the public. Mm. Uh, it's the criminal side of practice profession which is of interest mm. i don't think there's ever been a, 
a TV show focusing on civil litigation. It's always criminal litigation. Well, t- in one of my journalistic incarnations previously, I was I was pull- I was ran into somebody at an airport gate as I was about to get on a flight, uh, and they told me that uh, when I was covering a labor dispute, uh, somebody was you know suing their employer for unpaid wages or breach of contract, and they said that the coverage of it uh, forced the other side to uh, basically to capitulate and to come to a settlement faster than they would have if there was not coverage of the trial, and it was a very small minor thing in terms of you know Hong Kong life and business. Um, but, I mean, if we broadcast these or live stream all the court cases, I mean, it would make it much easier for journalists to pick up on individual stories. Um, I think maybe yeah. you know, that's the point we put to Evan, Evan Rose yeah. here, a postdoctoral follower at University of Hong Kong's Faculty of Law. Um, good morning. And you've been talking, I think, about the effect perhaps on um, how, um, how lawyers might conduct their arguments if they realize there's a wider audience. Where we've probably seen some evidence of that in, in the U.S. already, haven't we? Um, yeah, so I mean, this is a this is a fairly common phenomenon uh, throughout the common law world. It's getting there in the civil law world as well. Um, actually, some of the Brazil was one of the early adopters of this. They've been broadcasting uh, court of final appeal proceedings, all of them since two thousand two, uh, with a record available back on on their YouTube channel. Wow. Um, Canada's been doing this for as long as I've been studying the courts. Um, Australia. Largely. Uh, the U.S. at the state level, certainly, although there has, uh, as I'm sure most of you are aware, there has been some reticence um, at, the, at the Supreme Court Didn't level. Did one of the Supreme Court justices say, over my dead body or something like yeah, that? Yeah, I believe that was uh, uh, Souter. Uh, it was about 20 years ago, but still, uh, still we're out. Audio recordings available. Uh, cameras doesn't look like it's going to happen. Uh, how about this soon. issue of lawyers playing to the gallery? I mean, we all remember the O.J. Simpson trial, don't we? And uh, once the cameras are in there, um, the lawyers know that their audience is not just, I mean, of course, still the most important audience in the courtroom. That's going to make the decision. But the their audience is not just in the courtroom. Yeah, and I think this is where we can draw a fairly significant distinction between um, appeals courts and, and trial courts. Um, it's certainly, I think, less of a consideration at the appellate level, because we are... Uh, we're not talking about juries, so there's there's less concern about trying to sway, let's say, a, a non-legal or a lay audience. Whereas at trial, um, the, the level of grandstanding that goes on in, in certain U.S. criminal cases is, is quite disturbing. But in Hong Kong, we have much fewer juries anyway, because the it's true, practice, yeah. the right to a jury trial is very is restricted to really a very limited number of offences. So perhaps that would be less of an issue here. Yeah, I, I think the issue here we, we, we get at trial, again, is, is trying to make... Um, trying to paint a set of facts that may well be legally irrelevant um, but will curry public opinion mm-hmm. um, or at the extreme and I, I mean I, again I'm saying this at the extreme um, we may see something like a litigator looking to make a public name for themselves regardless of the effect on or independent of the effect uh, that it might have on their client or the dignity of the court. I mean, you know, when we look at the uh, the history of this, there's a grandstanding lawyer. But I mean, the first ever televised court case was for uh, Adolf Eichmann, who was uh, caught by Nazi hunters in 1960. Was and that was the first televised trial. Um, Grenville Cross. I mean, w- is it important to have significant cases like the Adolf Eichmann case uh, in trial to, to make a point about public justice or important issues? Well, as I said at the outset, anything that can be done in, in cases, whether they're minor or, or major to demystify the process is a, is a good thing. I think it's probably right to say at the end of the day that for what uh, uh, people are most interested in in criminal trials are the reasons for the, the verdict uh, of, the, of the court, if it's a lower court, 
uh, perhaps the summing up uh, of the judge to the jury in a higher court, uh, and then the outcome of the case in the sense of the sentence which is imposed uh, and the reasons for the particular sentence. Uh, so as long as uh, members of the public are able to see those, I think it will have a, a considerable impact uh, and let people understand more uh, about how criminal justice uh, actually uh, operates. Of uh, course, this has been... Sorry. No, go on. Now, I was going to say, uh, you, you mentioned the O.J. Simpson trial, and uh, we, we've seen in various other jurisdictions how it has been helpful to, to have a, an insight into the sentencing process in particular. You will recall the, the case of Brenton Tarrant in, in New Zealand, who murdered uh, 51 Muslims when they, when they were praying. The judge's sentencing remarks there were, were televised, uh, and they brought home to everyone the, the enormity uh, of the crime that had occurred. Uh, and the same happened in, in Norway with the, with the, the mass murderer there, Anders uh, Brevik. Uh, parts of his trial uh, were televised. The viewers, again, uh, gained insight in, into the horrors that occurred in, in, in that crime. Over in South Africa, you may recall the, the case of the, the Paralympian Oscar Pistorius. Mm. Uh, and in that case, the judge committed uh, broadcasting in principle, but confined it to the opening and closing addresses of the lawyers, the evidence of the prosecution witnesses, uh, and the judgment of the sentencing, uh, with Pistorius' own testimony not being televised, although or it could be heard. So it is possible not to broadcast the whole thing uh, and still to have uh, an important uh, 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 insight uh, into into how proceedings are, are conducted and into how they and how particular decisions are taken. How about the point that we were discussing with Evan Rosevear just now that in Hong Kong we have a relative, comparatively few jury trials, so um, there should be less of concern in that in that perspective, and that perhaps there's not necessarily objection to letting um, the, the cameras into district court and the uh, magistrates court. And if we want to really expand access, to, um, after all, the court of final proceeding proceedings are all going to be in English. You want to expand justice community. We, we want to be letting the cameras into courtrooms where a significant number of cases are conducted in Cantonese. Well, I mean, you certainly make a good point there, but uh, always remember that the, the most interesting and the most important cases uh, are normally the ones that are tried uh, in the High Court uh, by, by juries. There will certainly be some in the District Court and the Magistrates Court that are of public interest, uh, and it may well be that portions of those trials uh, uh, can indeed be broadcast, subject to the concerns that I mentioned earlier. But it's important, for example, that uh, witnesses who want anonymity should, uh, should be protected, that victims of uh, particular types of abuse such as sexual abuse, uh, and uh, children should be protected from having their, their likenesses uh, broadcast, uh, and that uh, other vulnerable witnesses, are, as I say, are, 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 not, uh, are not exposed to the, the television cameras. Uh, but subject to those types of considerations, this is certainly something that could be, be considered uh, down the line. Uh, Evan Rose, presumably courts, especially in America where they televise so many cases, courts in other jurisdictions have handled those kind of issues. I would imagine they keep vulnerable witnesses off camera and things like that. Or do, do you have cases where um, uh, those kind of trials are televised but uh, various precautions are taken about the witnesses involved? So as a, as a general rule, certainly in, in Canada, a jurisdiction I'm a bit more familiar with, uh, the... I guess the the availability or the, the broadcast of court cases is generally restricted to the appellate courts. Um, you will see something like we still have the sketch artist um, at at times. Yeah, yeah. In, in the U.S., where you're looking at something a little bit different because you you have 50 jurisdictions uh, and the criminal code is is split along state lines rather than federal, so you actually do have 50 different ways to deal with it. Um, so in 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 many cases, yes, you you would have that, um, but I think some of these concerns do get brought out more significantly in places where you have, say, elected district attorneys, 
who really do have an interest in prosecuting what you might call um, salacious cases so that they can stand tough on crime or, or things like that. And I think that's some of the concern that you're getting um, as well when you go lower down in, into, the, into the trial, into the magistrates or the district courts here. Um, obviously, uh, we're not talking about electing here, but individuals trying to curry favor uh, is an issue, Making or could be anyways. Or up for promotion? Um, I, I mean, I wouldn't want to speculate too much on the internal promotion process, but that is a, a real concern in other jurisdictions. Or running for LegCo or, or district councils or something like that. I um, mean, there are certainly parallels, yes. Yeah. De Dennis, um, Dennis um, what I'm, one of the things that I'm, I'm wondering about in this whole process here is uh, when, would a, when would a lawyer for either side say, I would like to fight this? I, I do not want this particular case to be televised. Is this going to add a whole other round of process to court cases where you have to set aside a day just to have an argument about whether or not this is televised or live streamed? Uh, whether I don't think it will add another round, Andrew, um, in that it would probably be sorted out at a pretrial stage. I assume the, the uh, case management conference where if there are genuine concerns about um, broadcasting or live streaming, they can be raised and the trial judge, who typically is in charge of the CMC, can make a decision. Um, and that the CMC deals with a whole host of interlocutory ma pre-trial matters and it can be ironed out there. I just wanted to follow up on one point about the concern regarding grandstanding and, if that's the right word, or people trying to um, advertise themselves. I, I think a counterpoint, and that's a very valid point, but a counterpoint to that is um, that it provides an ability for um, new entrants to the profession to get a better view as to how uh, cross-examination and submissions can be made. There, there may be a valuable training aspect to uh, further opening of courts. In the old days, when I was a student, we'd have to truck down to the uh, Royal Courts of Justice in the Strand and sit in the gallery and watch. Um, it would have been a lot easier if we could have just streamed that, if there had been technology of that nature, to our desks and watch it. You make a very good point there, and I, I think Professor Simon Young already made this point in the SCMP for uh, training law students. This would be absolutely invaluable. Um, so there's only those benefits. Um, uh, Grenville Cross, I don't think we've asked you directly on the issue of grants. I mean, we're all aware of uh, cases where lawyers um, uh, burnish their reputation and uh, by taking on high-profile cases. But um, um, where do you stand on the, the dangers of grandstanding if, uh, if court proceedings are, are televised in Hong Kong? Well, you may remember, Danny, that when uh, the televising executive council was first being mooted, uh, the concern there that there would be too much grandstanding by the legislative councillors. Uh, well, you might say to... that sometimes there was some of that, wouldn't you? So <laughs> the, the, maybe the, you, you, you'd then have a similar concern the, the, about the court. There was indeed some of that, but I think that o over the years that it's been taken, that it was a good thing that people would be, would be able to see what was going on uh, inside the legislative council. Of course, that was also a concern uh, when the, the live uh, uh, broadcasting of uh, the, the proceedings in the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom was introduced back in 2010. Uh, and uh, it didn't turn out to be a problem at all, which is why it was extended to the uh, Court of Appeal uh, three years later. Uh, and by an interesting coincidence, the man who oversaw the uh, introduction of uh, live broadcasting into the United Supreme Court was the first president of, the, of that court, uh, Lord Nicholas Phillips, uh, who is now a, a non-permanent judge in the Hong Kong Court of Final Appeal. So I'm sure that he would have some very valuable insights to share with the committee uh, when it considers uh, these issues. But so far as I can tell, it hasn't been a serious problem in the United Kingdom, uh, and I wouldn't imagine it would be so here. Mm.
So it's not a done deal yet that this is going to happen. Uh, they, there's an indication that there's going to be a working group formed. Um, for each of you, what advice would you give to that working group? If they invited you to come and present, what would be like the number one or two points that you would make to them? Say, make sure you do this or make sure you don't do that something. Evan, what do you think? Um, well, I think one of the key uh, one of the key things that needs to be kept in mind, especially if we're talking about both a civic and and a professional educational function, um, is advance notice of hearings, which is something that's not an issue with the CFA, um, but it can be a, a serious issue in lower courts when you have uh, you'll just get the role for the day coming out, say, so no one will be able to schedule what uh, or plan on on what. Uh, what hearings are looking at, but also probably more importantly, making the court filings available. Um, a lot of times, particularly on appeal, you're not going to be able to make too much sense of what's going on in the courtroom if you haven't read at least the skeletons. You're talking here about the, the much more people like us, basically, the, the, the law fellows and the law students and so on. They're the ones who are going to read the findings. If we're talking about the general public, they're not going to be uh, downloading the findings from the court of final appeal, or a uh, few maybe. But No, uh, I mean, I think uh, it's something I use quite frequently when teaching in, in Canada. Just base-level undergraduates, can you give them a little instruction they can read through it. I think it's certainly not going to be everyone, but an educated population, a, a, a small percentage who can say act, act as a sort of watchdog for an accountability function can certainly do this type of things. And it just adds to the transparency of the process. Materials are already there and largely electronically filed anyways. So why not make them available? It, it just furthers the, the, the sort of the impetus of what's going on. Hmm. Dennis Brock, uh Top, you know, top pick of things you would advise or advise not to do? Andrew, I think uh, I'm just summarising what's been said before. I think that the, the issues around uh, matters requiring privacy and confidentiality uh, and in particular uh, emotional matters. And what I mean by that is matters relating to uh, matrimonial affairs. I don't think they would lend themselves naturally to broadcast or live streaming because of the, the tensions that divorce proceedings can arise, and of course, more importantly, proceedings relating to the custody and care of children. Um, again, I, I have no doubt that this uh, working party um, will um, filter those types of proceedings out of the ability to be live-streamed. That, that's what I would um, emphasize. I mean, and it, Additionally, it's not my area, but in relation to criminal matters, uh, probably it's too early to be thinking about televising jury trials because the jury members have their have their, uh, their right to confidentiality and, um, and privacy. So uh, maybe that's an area for another day. So I leave that to Mr Cross, who's obviously got greater experience in the criminal courts than me. Let's go back to Grenville Cross, but also Grenville Cross, uh, one, one uh, thing that arises is if we're talking about trials of public interest, uh, then the trials of greatest public, or some of the trials of greatest public interest in Hong Kong would be the national security cases. And no, uh, so far there have never been any juries in national security cases and may well be that juries are relatively rare there. So um, what, what are your initial thoughts about the idea of televising national security cases? Well, I think they would be in the same category as, as district court cases. Uh, the, uh, the, the public, I would imagine, are primarily interested in the reasons for verdict, with be it guilty or, or not guilty, uh, and in the reasons for sentence. Uh, and as in the district court, there could be uh, no objection, I would have thought, in due course uh, to uh, having those uh, proceedings being, being televised. But as regards the committee itself that's looking at this issue, I would have thought that uh, it should take the view that open justice is a good thing, that uh, that should be its starting point, 
that uh, confidentiality must be preserved for certain uh, types of individuals, privacy considerations must be prioritised. Uh, but uh, at the end of the day, it, it's a good thing if, uh, if the process, as I said earlier, can, can be, uh, be, be demystified. So you can see a situation where perhaps really quite a high proportion of, of Hong Kong, the judgments itself um, uh, are, are televised, although the, the rest of the, the case is not necessarily. Well, the judgments and the, the sentencing exercises. I mean, judgments at the end of the day, these, these are what is, what is uh, normally reported in the, in the media uh, and uh, uh, on the television and so on. Uh, and uh, if people were able to see for themselves the actual reasons for uh, conviction or, or, uh, or, or acquittal uh, or for sentencing, uh, that would be the, the most important part uh, of the trial process, I would have thought. Uh, and uh, that would go a long way to, to furthering uh, open justice and, uh, and uh, uh, reducing misconceptions about the way the system operates. Mm, okay. Well, thank you very much. Um, I know, uh, Grenville Cross, you have to leave us, so thank you very much to the Senior Counsel, Professor of Law, former Director of Public Prosecutions of Hong Kong. I'd like to remind our listeners that you can send an email at backchat at rthk.hk or hit us on our Facebook page. We will try to get it on air. Um, and you probably have questions today. I'm, I'm the village idiot on today's panel because, of course, Danny Giddings... It's always good to have a non-lawyer, yes. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to remind you that Danny Giddings, of course, wrote the book on Hong Kong's constitution. It was well, a law one professor. Of them, one, of them. And one, of, one of them. I call it the book. Um, so, uh, if you if, if they're talking a little bit above your head like mine, uh, then feel free to send us an email or hit us on our Facebook page. Uh, we'd also like to give you a quick hit on the weather before we go to the news today. Mainly cloudy, one or two light rain patches. Looks like we're going to be getting up uh, around 19 degrees of a high. Lunar New Year is going to be looking good. Temperatures are going to rise a little bit and then come back down in the second day of Lunar New Year. Uh, currently, the temperature is 16 degrees Celsius. And we are at 56% humidity on Back Chat with Danny Giddings and me, Andrew Work. That was the news. This is Back Chat, and you're back with Danny Giddings and Andrew Work. And uh, we've got two guests still on the line, and today we're talking about televising or live – actually, not televising, live streaming uh, court cases in Hong Kong. We've got Evan Rosevere, postdoctoral fellow from the University of Hong Kong's Faculty of Law. Sounds like you might have done a little bit of uh, law teaching in Canada as well. Uh, and Dennis Brock, a litigator and partner at O'Melveny. I'm going to get a, hit a quick hit on a couple of emails that came in. Here's one from Mike. Uh, Mike is taking a shot, but then he's making a note on efficiency. Let's go. He says, uh, the public can finally see how boring and slow slash tedious court proceedings really are. Poorly spoken litigators and barristers might not want the public to see their incompetency. Ouch. Uh, then he goes on to say, finally, if this would allow judges to watch the proceedings, instead of having to write longhand everything down, the recording could be transcribed and the process would be sped up considerably. And then maybe later on we can get to Andrew's question. Different Andrew, not me, Andrew. Uh, he says, morning, the elephant in the room in this discussion is national security cases. Have these ever been televised anywhere in the world? And maybe we'll start with this question of uh, efficiency in the court cases from Mike. Um, really, judges are writing things down by hand? Is this not... Well, some, I mean, it, it has begun to change. But um, on that more broadly, let's maybe go to Dennis Brock first. I mean, this was something that occurred to me in the first half, especially now we're, we're talking primarily about televising appellate courts and maybe the judgments themselves. I mean, um, yes, it's good for law, great for law students, but for a public...
public that's brought up on LA law or the practice and so on and things like that. Better call Saul. Better call Saul. They tune in expecting to see this sort of um, dynamic cross-examination cross of witnesses and then they, they just watch some judge reading out a, uh, a, a long script. Um, isn't that going to actually going to turn people up? They'd be less interested in... Um, in finding out about what's going on in the courts as a result, um, Dennis Brock. You've been in so many of these cases yourself, you know how they might look to, to a sort of a layperson. Yeah, I think we're uh, confusing two areas. I mean, uh, the, the issue of the judge just reading out the judgment or the sentencing is in criminal matters, which are uh, very different from what I handle, which is civil matters. And I think the proposal, as I understand it, is that they would be broadcasting of the entire civil case. Well, uh, I'm Graham, not sorry, for Graham, a moment that yeah. civil cases are interesting um, for, to the general public. So, yeah, I, I don't see this being um, uh, any challenge to, as you mentioned, LA law or the practice on a Sunday evening as was. Mm -hmm. uh, it'll be much like, I suspect, how enthusiastic uh, the uh, BBC Parliament is watched in England. Um, it's there if you want to watch it. Most people don't. Um, so, uh, civil matters, they are what they are. Criminal matters are different, and um, as has been touched upon, do attract some attention. But for various reasons, I suspect criminal trials are a little bit too difficult at the moment. Well, Granville, what Granville Cross was talking about earlier, I think, was actually televising um, the. Um, the the judgments and uh, the the reasons for sentencing for criminal trials as well. Maybe we'll uh, come back to that with uh, Evan Rosevi in, in a moment and talk about practice overseas. But um, you, you're suggesting going ra rather further for civil civil cases, and that civil cases the entire um, the entire case could be te could be televised. Well, in principle, I can't see why they shouldn't. Um, we have in civil cases, aside from a very very few. Um, cases are all bench trials, so you don't have the jury aspect, and uh, there is, I can't see any reason in principle why um, the full civil case wouldn't be broadcast, um, I, as long as we were sensitive to the concerns of the identity of witnesses who may not welcome their face being shared on, on the broadcast system, but that can be dealt with, I'm sure, uh, and uh, doubtless the working party will work their way through that. Um, I still, as I said, we are, you know, a lot, I suspect, a long way away from broadcasting of trials. The proposals um, seem to focus entirely on uh, appellate, where there are, no there are no juries and no witnesses. By the time we get up to a, a, an appellate stage, it is very arid discussion of the law, um, and uh, I don't imagine that's going to be um, a sellout on broadcast channels. But just to clarify, for civil, you're not necessarily just talking about appellate, or for also for civil, you're talk just talking about appellate? No, I'm saying the proposals, as I understand them, are for appellate only. But um, you're you're thinking for civil, then there's no real... Well, there's obviously, safeguards for some cases, matrimonial cases and so on, but um, in general, there's no particular objection to um, televising uh, civil first-instance cases in, in their entirety. Danny, that's a good summary. In principle, I can't see why they shouldn't be televised. I suspect that it's going to be um, an evolution rather than a revolution, i.e. we'll see uh, appellate cases first and then down the track a move to televising uh, the trials and the interlocutory hearings leading up to those trials. 
Well, let's ask Evan Rose here from your experience elsewhere in the common law world. Is that distinction drawn between civil and criminal? Are civil cases more prone to being uh, televised uh, in the original in the original case as opposed to uh, on appeal? So, again, in terms of Canada, we're really not talking about televising anything at the trial level. Uh, you'll get reporting. You'll have people in the courtroom, but but beyond that. Um, you're not seeing any, any type of broadcast. Um, you, you've started to a little bit uh, during the, the sort of COVID era when uh, hearings have started moving online, but that's really not, not hammered out yet. Um, at the appellate level, there is no distinction generally drawn. Uh, civil, criminal, um, some might attract a little bit more interest, but again, um, once you're dealing solely with points of law, both sides tend to get a little arid. Um, but I think the, the key point here is it's it's not there to entertain the public. It, it's there to serve an accountability function and perhaps an educative function. So we, we're really not, or hopefully not, too concerned with, uh, with, with competing with, uh, let's say, law and order. Yeah, I mean, so you mentioned earlier that Brazil has, they broadcast all of them. And I mean, we say... They have their own YouTube channel, apparently. Yeah. Didn't you mention they have the, the Brazil Supreme Court has its yeah, own YouTube uh, TV channel? TV Justicia. Wow. So, so uh, you know, what I'm looking for here is if we're saying, okay, in Hong Kong, we're going to start with this very small group of court cases. Um, is that how Brazil started? Did they just go full hog and say, okay, all court cases broadcast? Just well, get sorry, them on no, the it's internet, the, it's the, uh, it the Apex Court that, that has this channel. Okay. Um, now... That being said, they hear about 2,000 cases a year. Um, so it, uh, it, it sits in a rather different fashion than, than we're used to in the common law world. So right. you do get a lot of content out of that. So, I mean, but does it start with a small group of court cases and then spread and then eventually get to different, different courts and different levels of court hearings? Uh, to my knowledge, uh, because they are a federal structure and the courts are a federal structure as well, just like in the U.S., but to my knowledge, it's only at the apex level that that happens. I believe there has been some movement into the uh, the electoral court as well, mm -hmm. um, but we're looking at top level only. Okay. I mean, the, the idea of the court having a YouTube channel, it sounds, that sounds incredible when you first think about it. But as, as you thinking it through a bit further, I mean, we're talking about um, uh, providing um, a video feed of, as we're saying, rather arid court cases. So TV, TV channels are not going to want to carry this. So if you want to, to make it widely available, maybe does, does that actually perhaps make sense? I mean, is Brazil the only place that we know of to have a YouTube channel for its court? Um so there is an NGO in South Africa um, that makes available um, what, do we say? Uh, what are the, the equivalent of confirmation hearings for uh, all high court judges and constitutional court judges, but that's done on a sort of volunteer basis. Uh, but the, the actual video is made, uh, is made available to them, my, my understanding is. Mm. So YouTube is really just serving as a, a, a server at that point. Uh, it's cheaper than than paying for your own bandwidth and hosting. No, yeah, no. Right now in Hong Kong, I think you can't take a camera. You can't oh, even take photos. Oh, not only that, you will be in no -no. big trouble. I mean, even yeah. taking even taking pictures in court in precincts. I mean, uh, outside the courtroom and so on. You you you've had this problem with tourists and people wanted to snap pictures. Yes. I mean, the rule, yeah. rules are pretty strict about that. But I mean, if we're saying okay, but now we're just going to live stream them, are people going to show up and start saying, well, why can't I live stream it? If well, they may say it, that, but I, I don't think that will change the rule. Uh, what do you think, Dennis Brock? I don't think that will change the rules that there should be no unauthorized photography in courts. I think that's inevitable. Not, we're not going to permit members of the public to get their iPhones out. You're not, you're not permitted. The members of the public are not permitted to use electronic devices in court. 
yeah. or even now in the precincts of the court, as in the, the waiting area outside. So I don't think that's a, a concern we need to have. I mean, it'll happen. People even now sneak a phone in and try and take a photo. Uh, and if they're caught, um, they get into deep trouble. Uh, let, let's follow up on the other question that was raised by um, a, a, a listener about uh, the issue of uh, televising uh, national security cases, um, uh, which we touched on also briefly with Grenville Cross. Uh, Evan Rose, do you have any experience from other common law jurisdictions about, about that? Uh, relatively limited in that regard, uh, but to my knowledge, there is no broadcasting at that level. Uh, hasn't really come before the Supreme Court of Canada. I think one or two cases in the early 2000s dealing with uh, Omar Khadr. Um but most of the, the the serious issues will get redacted out, um, and it'll be more against um, redacted out. Is uh, something that's going to happen with written judgments? Is really, sorry, yeah. I, mean, um, I, mean, I suppose the, you could sit and edit the um, the, the yeah. The, sorry, the video, I, I, perhaps I misspoke there. Um, the issues that will be discussed in open court will be limited. Mm. Okay, but if we, I mean, Grenville Cross seemed to be quite supportive of the idea. I mean, he was, he was saying, well, if we're only talking about um, uh, televising the uh, judgments themselves and the um, the reasons for sentencing, there's, there's no issue of state secrets when you get to the actual judgments and the reasons for sentencing. So, uh, presumably, in principle, there's no reason why national security cases should be treated any differently from any other judgments there. Uh, I, I, I would say I, I would agree. Uh, the one concern I would have is that when you start restricting what is being heard, uh, if you're restricting just to the judge's summation of facts, um, then you are losing some of the supposed benefit uh, that you would be getting from broadcasting the case as a whole, because you are losing the, the actual assessment or the, the witness statements, entry of evidence, um, and you're getting what is seen as a, a state authority figure dictating what the facts were. Um, so you may be losing some of the benefits. Oh, okay, that's interesting. So you're actually arguing for something really ra rather different from what uh, Grenville Cross was suggesting. I wouldn't say I'm arguing for it. Well, I'm, I'm simply, simply stating that that's the issue. But you, you, they are merits to having the entire case um, televised, and um, and there could be could be issues about just having the the judgment and the sentencing. Uh, as uh, at least from a not necessarily any any real sense, but if we are going back to this idea of open courts and the. The, the sort of maxim that justice must not only be done but seem to be done, then broadcasting the entirety of the proceedings would seem to be the at least your starting point, walking it back for any justified reason perhaps, but starting it at full transparency. Another issue in terms of open... I mean, the Chief Justice actually referred to this. He said, I think he said something like, especially in times when we've had to restrict people coming into the courtroom because of COVID-related restrictions, uh, that um, is there a danger, and has this happened in other jurisdictions, that once you start televising court proceedings, maybe the court then decides to um, restrict public a access to the physical courtroom itself, says, well, you can watch it on the, the live stream, so we no longer need to provide the same public galleries in the courtroom and so on. So, to my knowledge, this has not been an issue, but I, I can't, can't, can't claim to have a comprehensive knowledge of it. But I, courtrooms still exist as courtrooms uh, throughout most countries that I'm aware of, um, and they remain at least notionally open, even if practically accessing them, uh, date and time, location, etc., can be difficult. Uh, Dennis Brock, I mean, this is, uh, maybe even just on the current situation, it has become just as a practical reality, I mean, and the, the COVID life in the last few years in Hong Kong, it has become more difficult, hasn't it, for members of the public to um, actually attend court hearings? Um, well, uh, they, indeed, um, there has been 
necessity um, restrictions on the ability to attend um, courts, um, generally not for lengthy periods, um, and obviously for good reason to try to minimise the spread of the disease. Uh, we're, we're away, from, happily, we're away from that now, so. Um, I don't think it'd be a problem down the track, please God. Yeah. Um, you know, I was noting earlier that my, my daughter uh, did her first two years of university during the COVID era, and the university's really ramped up to provide online classes, and they've gotten used to it. And, you know, now that everything's supposedly back to normal, she almost never goes to class. She has to, she steps on campus maybe once a week, even though she lives a block and a half away. For lay people like me, you know, like, you know, like Danny said earlier, watching Better Call Saul, or, or you know, we had this impression that a lot of the legal process happens in the hallways of courts. It happens on the sidebars or, you know, people, as they watch how the court case is going, they, they have talks. Um, will some of that be lost if, if professionals are just tuning in from their offices uh, when they feel like it to watch, you know, online recorded proceedings? You know, are we going to lose some of the interplay or does that not really happen? Is that just TV drama? Dennis? I, I don't think the proposal is that we move from uh, in-person hearings to or go back to the days of Zoom hearings. Mm. This is just live streaming of uh, in-person hearings. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think anything's going to be lost in that. And as I emphasize, civil proceedings aren't that interesting, so it's going to be the criminal proceedings that really attract any attention at all. Well, how about that, as we move into the closing uh, phase of this discussion, um, how about that separate issue of Zoom hearings that uh, have um, uh, mushrooms around the world um, uh, as a result of the pandemic? Isn't, isn't that, uh, it's again, like uh, Zoom, Zoom, Zoom lectures at universities, isn't that just something that is here to stay and it may be scaled back um, now um, we're in sort of a more stable epidemic situation, but you can't take it away entirely, uh, Dennis Brock? Uh, well, it have gone away. Pretty much, I don't, even in international arbitration, where Zoom hearings were thought to be um, were going to kill travel, uh, unless you're in the same time zone, you can't. It's very difficult to zoom across time zones, as in Zoom hearings in multiple time zones, because someone's being inconvenienced. I don't see, uh, if, unless there's some other catastrophe, uh, a move to generally having Zoom hearings. Uh, even interlocutory matters, much could be lost by uh, removing the in-person element. All right. Well, uh, Dennis Brock, we'll look forward to you standing tall in the courtroom, uh, not on a Zoom meeting for years to come. Thank you very much to Dennis Brock, litigator and partner at O'Melveny. And also thank you uh, from our, our studios in Admiralty, Evan Rosevere, a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Hong Kong's Faculty of Law. You're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233-88-266 and have your say. All right, we're back on Backchat. And, uh, you know, for our last Backchat of the, what was this, a metal tiger? Was it a metal tiger? Energy tiger, some kind of tiger. I think I think our next guest will know what kind of tiger it was, and we head to I mean, the We normally just call it the Year of the Tiger, though. The Year of the Tiger, yeah, I like to get the specifics in. Um, I'm sure our next guest will know which it was and what we're heading into, uh, because he is Dr. Louis Ng, the director of the Hong Kong Palace Museum. Good morning, Dr. Ng, and welcome to the show. Good morning, good morning, uh, Danny and Andrew. Hey, you've got a new you've got a new exhibit on uh, that yeah, you want people yeah, to come yeah, and yeah. see. That's tell you know tell us about it. I just want to suggest you know that uh, um, you know the fans you know that go to with the, the Hong Kong Palace Museum during Chinese New Year. <laughs> Actually, you know that we have uh, uh, eighty five pieces. Um, new arrival, uh, new, newly arrived from Palace Museum Beijing. You know that we just uh, put them on display in our galleries. 
Okay, and and are you going to be open throughout the Chinese New Year? Oh, uh, we just close. Uh, um, you know that the first days, uh, the second, uh, because for the third day, because it's our uh, normal. Uh, code, uh, you know that it's a Tuesday. Normally we close on Tuesday, so we we op- uh, we open the museum. You know, on the fourth day. You know that the Chinese New Year. Can you tell us more, a little bit more about these you know, these new objects that have arrived from the Palace Museum? I, I understand quite a lot of them are in the uh, display on uh, Dawn to Dusk Life in the Forbidden City. Yeah, 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 because it's, uh, this uh, gallery is about the knife um, in uh, uh, Forbidden Cities. So uh, that's the thing that uh, we uh, have around 28 uh, new pieces. You know, that's, uh, they are all, you know, the priceless, you know, treasure uh, from past museum. But, you know, that there's a, a lot of uh, story uh, to tell, I think, that from the objects that the visitor can explore about the emperor, empress uh, in their life, in um, their daily life in Forbidden City. This is uh, primarily the Emperor Qianlong, isn't it? And they, 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 it's, uh, mainly uh, Qianlong, because, you know, that uh, he was crazy for, you know, that art objects. So, you know, that he ordered uh, uh, no, he, um, uh, his royal factory inside of a city, you know, to make a lot of, you know, that uh, art pieces. So, so I think mainly um, this about 90% you know, of these objects uh, were made during the, the Qianlong period. And I think you, you, you and your colleagues were saying, right, we actually know more from these objects, we know more about the life of the Emperor Qianlong than pretty much any historical figure from that period. Is that right? We can tell. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we, we know he was a big art collector. Uh, what, what are some of the showstoppers? What are the things that, you know, real people are going to be coming and, you know, going out of their way to come and see uh, during well, the Chinese Well, there's a lot, you know, that because um, uh, uh, he himself, he's artist and art collector. Uh, that's, you know, the, from calligraphy, you know, ceramics, you know, that's the decorated art, everything, you know, that about art uh, he loved and he made. And then, uh, luckily, I think the, most of these was, you know, the, uh, uh, preserved. And then that we were very, very, you know, the fortunate you know, to, to put, I think, that bring them to Hong Kong for display. So, uh, this including, uh, including, you know, the, some calligraphy and also some, you know, the, uh, they need use item, uh, but they are very beautiful made. So just for uh, one, you know, that one piece, you know, that yesterday we have a press con and a lot of, you know, the media uh, uh, show interest. It's about hot pot. <laughs> hot pot, you know, but it's hot, this hot pot is only for one people, only uh, for one uh, channel himself. For the uh, emperor, the, right? Yes, and, uh, yeah, the emperor himself. And then... Uh, this is sort of an of, example of the level of detail about his life that we can find out from these yeah yeah right? yeah actually yeah you know about the daily life you know about knife you know that everything and and a lot of you know i'm looking through kind of some of the the items that were on display um and it seems like a lot of them were directed at bringing luck to the emperor and i mean did was there almost a compulsion to surround themselves with things that they thought would influence their luck uh and was that for the family or was that for the the family of the emperor or was it for the nation I think that it's both. I think that himself, the family, and for the nations, you know, that because 
uh, he was the emperor of the whole China. You know that this is very important. You know also um, um, this is representing you know the heritage. You know of the whole country about the past three thousand years ago. So, but uh, you know uh, Chen Long himself, you know that uh, was a Manchuria, but uh, he like you know the Han culture. So that's I think that uh, for um, his artwork uh, for for the for art item he ordered. So reflecting you know that the Chinese cultural heritage. Mm. So you know that I think that uh, from his um, you know that um, bedroom, you know that his court office, you know the all decorated, uh, you know with this artwork. And, and how much of it was a split between the Manchurian? And the hand, and was was there a tension between those? Did he did he try to appear more hand than the hand, or did he also bring his Manchurian heritage into the palace? And was was there a tension well, it, between? It's the two? interesting, you know, subjects. You no, know? but sometimes I think that he tried to retain some, you know, the Manchurian culture, especially you know that the military, you know, that is because you know that he's a minority. I think that at that time, and rule, you know, that so many population, you know, but China is not easy. But in the meantime. Uh, he know. Uh, he knew that. I think that uh, he he needed to engage local Chinese. So, uh, um, uh, displaying I think that his uh, pressure for uh, Han culture is very, very important. You know that. So, it's about the engagement. But in the meantime, I think that uh, this um, uh, he need to you know that uh, preserve you know the Manchuria culture. Uh, most important is about hunting. So every year he spent at least two months in hunting. You know. Okay, and like hunting where? What was he hunting? Well, I think this is the outside uh, uh, Beijing city, for the city, you know, that, uh, well, this is the old gate that will be about a thousand people, you know, following him, you know, for the hunting activities. So, and normally he spent, you know, the one to two month times. Really? Huh. Yeah, and that is interesting that, you know, that this kind of, you know, hunting activities, you know, that uh, visitor can explore, you know, exhibitions. Oh, maybe, now, maybe King Henry VIII and the Xianlong Prince would have liked to have hung out together. I heard they liked hunting as well. Danny? Now, a lot yeah. of these, these exhibits are very fragile, aren't they? They're not going to be on display for very long, as far as I understand, right? You're, you're, you're only going to have them on display for a couple of months, and then you're going to withdraw yeah. them. Yeah, because of the conservation, you know, for, for example, for uh, uh, you know, paper, for printing, and also the textile, you know, that, uh, you know, um, because uh, this kind of object, some objects, you know, that has been, you know, uh, made, I think, uh, 500, you know, several hundred, even 1,200 years. We need to preserve that. So we like to, we like to limit, I think, that the time exposure to night. So that's why, you know, that every three months we have to change the objects and then ship them back to Palace Museum Beijing. But in the meantime... Oh, I see. So the, yeah, they're only going to stay in Hong Kong for three months at a time. Yeah, sometimes three months, some, you know, some objects for six months, uh, some a longer time. So I think it's good that we'll be new attractive to our visitors. That's why you know, for this time we have 85, you know, the new objects, you know, that together with other existing objects has been displayed for several months here. Hmm. And uh, tickets still available uh, immediately after Chinese New Year. I, I mean, I know you've had quite a lot of visitors, but I, you're still you're still you're a long way behind them. Plus, <laughs> I can say that you know that uh, this month should be okay. Next month should be okay. You you can buy a ticket. I can't say you know that maybe in March, in April, when we op- we open the border, I have no idea that we may maybe a lot of many visitors will come. You know that to visit our our museum. 
So get it while you can is the message. I'm looking at some of the items through here, and I'm wondering if uh, when people go to see this, are they going to maybe take pictures of them and then try to replicate them for sale in Hong Kong? Like, would, would people does that happen? Do people look at this and think, "I want something just like the Qianlong Emperor"? You know, I will have my I will have my Qing's uh, court favorite winter dish in, in a cloisonné enamel on gold copper alloy for my hot pot. Well, I think that's uh, quite popular. I think it's to be talking about museum merchandising, especially uh, in Paris and in Beijing. It's a huge success in the previous uh, year. I think the, um, the overall, you know, sales record, you know, they're talking about 10 million or even, you know, the uh, 100 million a year. So I think it's good, I think, that because uh, after uh, visiting, appreciating the ob- real object, you cannot bring them to home, but you can buy a souvenir. Uh, you know, there's, you know, that whether it's a copy, you know, there are or, or, or other merchandising developed from the from the from the object. In, but what's very important is about the copyright. So, for all objects we want to produce a souvenir in Hong Kong, we need to talk to you know the owner, you know, the uh, palace museum. Well, I think this very important subjects that we are going to engage the Hong Kong designer. I think the uh, uh, joining, I think the design a new merchandising basing um, um, based on the, the the object from Palace Museum. All right, thanks. We'll uh, we'll definitely have, we'll have to be getting our tickets and heading on down for the for the Chinese New Year to see these these items in Hong Kong for a limited time only. Thank you very much to Dr. Louis Ung, who is the director of the Hong Kong Palace Museum. Right, that is your last back chat for the year of the tiger thanks so much to everybody uh, which is you for listening calling and getting in touch online today's show was produced by yuki tong our, our sound man today was james lung uh we're gonna be back on thursday after the chinese new year so uh, you'll have to just you know hold your breath for the next back chat uh quick check on the weather mainly cloudy uh, once again one or two light rain patches in the morning high of 19 degrees and thanks for coming on uh, today danny i love doing a double header with you uh, two days in a row that's been fun go hey fat choy everyone yeah go hey fat choy temperature 16 degrees celsius and your, te- your humidity is 58 percent this quarter's demand notes for rates and government rent have been posted the rates concession has already been reflected but there is no concession for government rent Remember to pay by January 31st or you'll have to pay a surcharge. Property owners must ensure that the rates and government rent in respect of their properties are paid on time. If you haven't received the demand note, please call the Rating and Valuation Department's Inquiry Hotline on 21520111. The time is 9.30 a.m. in Hong Kong and now the news with Barry O'Rourke. Trade unionist legislator Lam Chun Singh is calling on the Labour Department to issue clear guidelines for employers and employees over how to